last week, we transitioned actually into a series we're calling Dissecting Daniel. And last week, we opened our Bibles to the second chapter of Daniel, and we read the first 19 verses of the chapter that reveals the information that we'll expand upon today. And one of the first things we learned is the Babylonian king, his name Nebuchadnezzar, has had a dream. And the dream greatly concerns him. So much so that he gathers in all those close to him, his advisors, the astrologers, the magicians, all the people who are close to them, and demands from them not only to interpret the dream, but to tell him actually what the dream was. And we found then, we read through the text, that no man, no person was able to do that. They could not tell him the dream. They went through the motions at times in the past to tell him what the dream may have meant. But they could not tell him what he actually dreamt. And it pointed out to this our first application point that without God, human efforts will fail. But within the same account, we also noted in verse 11 that the advisors told King Nebuchadnezzar that not only could they not recount the dream for him, but in verse 11 that no one can show it to the king except the gods. It was a little G god, they're pagan gods they believed. And they said, they're not even dwelling within our flesh, which led to the second application point that we're blessed because our God is an active God with his people. And because God is active in our lives and hear our prayers, which is also the same for the four young men that we read about last week in Daniel chapter 2, being Daniel himself, his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, God then grants them the secret to the dream. That's where we left off last week in verse 19. Today we pick up more of the story as we return to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we see not only can Daniel know what it is, he doesn't take any credit for it. He gives the glory to God, and something wonderful happens after that. It may be a text you're familiar with. If so, we're going to refamiliarize ourselves with the text. You probably have heard about Daniel chapter 2 and these young men before. It, today it's a lengthy text because we kind of finished the rest of the story. We only got through verse 19. The entirety of Daniel chapter 2 is 49 verses. So today, rather than standing as typically what we do to read the word, we're just going to read the remaining verses for the rest of chapter 2 in four different scenes. We'll come to a particular section, we'll read it, and we'll expand upon it, we'll apply it. So there's no standing today, but let us go first pray, and then we'll read scene 1 in Daniel chapter 2. First, let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for the great many blessings you give to us, Lord. And we thank you again for the mothers here today. We pray, Lord, as we get into the Old Testament text of Daniel, that we would learn from it, Lord, and see how it truly applies to us. We are talking and discussing four young men, Lord, and we pray that we look upon these young men and look upon their faithfulness, their loyalty, and their commitment. And for us then today, Lord, as we live in our day and time to have that same level, of commitment and loyalty and faithfulness. Because, Lord, we know you're always loyal and faithful to us. So today, Lord, let us reciprocate that and give our glory to you and be faithful to you to the end. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to pick up the story in verse 16 of Daniel chapter 2. It's what I call the scene number one, which is the secret revealed. Here's the words of Daniel in his book. Verse 16, chapter 2. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. 
Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. We'll stop there at verse 23, because it really completes the first scene where the secret has truly been revealed. The scholar Mark Magano is correct in his commentary when he points this out. The professionals, remember the king has gathered around him everybody he thinks is able and capable to be able to interpret the dream and even tell him what it is. So he's put all the so-called professionals, the advisors, magicians, astrologers, all these people close to the king have assembled. So Mark Magano recognized the professionals told the king that divine revelation was needed to reconstruct the king's dream. Now recall they told the king that they could not recount it for him. In verse 11, they said no one could perform such a request. Of course, Daniel then takes this a picture moment and, and, and recognizes he must pray and he gets his companions to do so. But without what happens, we read in the text, the king has issued a command to slay, to execute all these so-called professionals and advisors even including Daniel and his friends. So then Daniel visits the king, as we read in the story, and requests a little bit of time. And his request is granted, miraculously, as God's intervention. And then he actually recognizes the moment, gathers his friends in verse 17 and verse 18. He hurried home, explained the situation to his friends, and then he called them together, or I recognize as a moment of group prayer. And we should ask ourselves, well, what then did these men pray for? And the answer, according to the text we can see, is that they prayed then that God completely revealed the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and in so doing, show the reality and power and wisdom of the true God. The significance of the moment should not be overlooked or even quickly dismissed. I mean, consider this. These are four young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The text never completely gives us their age, but all indication is that they're teens. I mean, teenagers, if you will, like some of the teenagers we have here this morning. So here is a beautiful picture of four young men, possibly teens, united in prayer. And for them, it's a life and death crisis. And then they pleaded with God to have mercy on them and preserve their lives and all the lives of the wisdom of the wise men of that time. And we noticed, in according to the text, that God delivered. I mean, notably, this is not the only moment. As we get through dissecting Daniel and even weeks to come, we'll recognize this is not the only moment. 
when Daniel and his companions, his friends, are going to get on their knees in a time of group prayer. We'll see this repetitive theme through Daniel because they recognize the power in prayer and they recognize there's truly one God, the sovereign almighty God that Daniel serves, that we also serve. Now, Warren Worsby, in his commentary, picks this up, and he calls Daniel's prayer believing prayer. And he states this, throughout this book, Daniel and his friends are presented as men of faith and prayer. We should consider the fact that they were far from home. But by faith, they could look toward Jerusalem and the temple and claim the promise of 1 Kings 8, that the God of heaven would hear the prayers and answer them for his own glory. Now, if we take all of that consideration, that comment and the observation and what we learn already from the text reveals the truth that we must acknowledge. And then becomes our first particular point. And it's written in the New King James Version of James 5.16. Our first point is the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. New, for James 5.16, New King James Version. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. The power of prayer is amazing. But so often underestimated. How many times in our lives, as Christian believers, do we gather people together and we look for advice, we look for wisdom, and when all that fails, we say, let us pray. When the very first thing we should have done is gather people together like Daniel and his friends and begin to pray. Prayer is powerful. And it should never be underestimated. Some of you may have heard before about the Haystack prayer meeting. It happened long ago. But if not, allow me to explain to you and tell you what the Haystack prayer meeting was all about. It was a Saturday afternoon during the month of August of 1806, about the time Dan was being born. August of 1806. So he might remember the occasion, the Haystack prayer meeting, but it was the, the, the occasion was five young men from Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, that met together to pray near a grove of maple trees north side of the campus. Now to begin to pray, a thunderstorm rolled in overhead. Lightning and rain forces students to run and take shelter in a haystack. But they simply just began to pray. Five young men, maybe similar in age that we find here in the text with the book of Daniel and his friends. So five young men praying. The storm began to rage and the lightning began to flash overhead. And the students simply prayed that God then would send them send them across the seas to share the good news and gospel of Jesus Christ to other parts of the world. This amazing prayer. In 1806, these five young men began to pray. They became the first missionaries. And six years to that day later, the missionaries landed overseas. And these men were included. The Haystack Prayer Meeting. It just begins to show us again how effective prayer really is. An effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person, man, woman, avails much. We should never underestimate the power of prayer. A lot of us in here have been impacted by prayer. But prayer is often sometimes underestimated. 
And maybe the application here for us then is kind of obvious, but in while you, unless you're missing this, let me explain to you that when you find yourself in a really tight spot, which happens in life, you need to share with your friends, the most trusted friends, the most faithful friends, what your story is, what your situation is, who also believe in the power of prayer. And then just pray. Because prayer is more effective than panic. A lot of times, when we get in the situation and we get tight in the spot, it's only natural, it's almost human instinct to begin to panic. But prayer is so much more effective than panic. One commentary I was reading last week said, prayer, panic, panic confirms your hopelessness, but prayer confirms your hope in God. So notice here, in the moment of crisis for Daniel and his friends, I mean, actually, it was a life or death crisis for them because if they could not come up with the answers, all the wise men, including Daniel's friends, would be executed, be slain. So they were in a moment of crisis. Daniel's friends did not panic. Rather than panic, they simply prayed. They didn't underestimate the power of prayer. They prayed and received an answer. And then we should look and see the outcome of Daniel's prayer. I mean, God revealed the contents and meaning in verses 18 and 19. Which means that Daniel's trust in God not only saved himself and his three friends, but all the wise men then of Babylon. Now, of course, as we recognize that, and before we move to the second scene, we should also see how Daniel takes no credit. Daniel takes no credit for the ability to interpret the dream. God is rightfully acknowledged as the one who reveals the secret. And Daniel then, as God reveals the secret to him, the first thing he does after that is he offers praise and thanks to God. Verses 20 through 23. Daniel said in verse 20, Bless be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Verse 23, To you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what was asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel recognizes there's no other way it could have been done except for God. And he knew the power of prayer. Daniel thanks the Lord, and as he does, after thanking the Lord, he goes and finds Arioch, which leads us now into the second scene. The second scene I call, Take Me to the King. Verse 24. Daniel chapter 2. Afterwards, therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Within well, Arioch, look at verse 25. Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head 
as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. That's scene number two, where Daniel asked Arioch to take him to the king. Now, one of the things that leaps off the page at me as I read the second scene is the fact that Arioch claims credit for himself in discovering someone that can reconstruct the dream to the king. Verse 25, he says, I, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. He's taking all the credit for himself. He says, I've done this. He didn't do anything. Then Daniel went to him, right? Daniel received the interpretation, the meaning through prayer. Arioch didn't do anything, but he takes the credit for himself. Daniel went to him and requested to go see the king. But notice Arioch's wording. I have found among the exiles from Judah a man. Now, of course, contrasting that to Daniel, in verses 27 28, Daniel takes no credit. He says, there's no one. The king inquires of Daniel, can you do this? And then it says, no wise man, enchanters, there's no one who can show to the king the mystery. But there is a God in heaven who reveals the mystery. Daniel gives the credit where it's due. He don't jump at the chance to steal the glory. I mean, Daniel's response, unlike Arioch's in verse 25, is not self-seeking. Daniel does not even mention himself. Daniel publicly gives all the glory to God. And in verse 30 of that particular text, in that section of that particular scene, when Daniel does mention himself, he claims his meditation is only for the benefit of the king. Verse 30, he said, The mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have given more than the living, but the interpretation will be known to the king and know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel takes no credit for anything. Ariel tries to steal some glory. But Daniel recognizes who has given him the answer to the dream and takes no credit. Kent Hughes makes an interesting observation. He said, this is the first time Daniel had ever been asked to do anything like this. Remember, he's a teenager. He's relatively young. He was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. He said he had heard how his forefather Joseph had interpreted Pharaoh's dreams in Egypt. Now the king he served had a dream. So he trusted that his father's God would reveal the dream to him also. Daniel took no credit for himself, but stood in awe of the God of Israel who revealed the mystery of the dream to him. It's a point we've got to see that Daniel takes no credit. And at least a second application, which is this, that you are not the star of the show. God is. It's a common theme, it seems to be, among people today. That people want to be the star and take the glory for just anything that happens. Former NBA champion David Robinson, who played 14 years for the San Antonio Spurs, understands a little bit about the world's mentality of trying to be the star. Robinson writes this. He says, NBA championship teams have something in common. 
They play with one goal in mind. Each player contributes his own gifts and efforts so the greater goal of winning can be reached. But players who seek their own glory at the sacrifice of the team's glory drive the team away from the success. So it is with life. The goal is not our own glory. In fact, trying to make life all about us pushes happiness further out of reach. I like Robinson's assessment here. I mean, trying to make yourself the star or exalt yourself may be what the world teaches, but it is not the way for a true believer. In fact, in 2004, Max Lucado wrote a book called It's Not About Me. And in the book, Lucado reminds us it's not truly about us at all, but rather it's all about God. He states, pop culture and psychobabble tell us to make ourselves the center of the universe in order to be happy. Churches have communicated the false idea that God exists to give us all the selfish we want. But in all honesty, it's not about me or you. It's all about God. This is what we must understand. It is through this shift in thinking that we can truly live an unburdened, happy life. Now, admittedly, when you start living for self, it's hard to stop. I mean, our world is taught from an early age. It becomes ingrained in our heart, soul, and mind that we need to take care of ourselves and we can have it our way. Commercials even tell you that. Burger King, thank you. Have it your own way. It's all about us. I, I pick up the words of Robinson. He continues. He said, our society is not wired for this kind of thinking. It's a me-centric world out there, which destroys much of what, we sh what should be good. Marriages are ruined because one or both partners are focused on their own happiness. Successful men and women are ruined by their own success, believing they don't need anyone else's input. And for some, life's troubles are magnified because they believe life is all about them. Maybe you've been there. But we're not the star of the show. God is. And Robinson and Locato, in their particular words they hear here and we use, is telling us that selfish living and all about me mentality can really lead to unhappiness. Because you alienate people without even realizing it. All because you desire the center of attention and be the star of the show. If that's where we're at, then we need someone to come along and remind us. It's not about you. It's not about me. We're not the star. God is. And now Daniel, according to the text, we, he learned some things. He received some insight. And Daniel, in receiving that wisdom and insight, he could have easily said, hey, King, let me show you what I've learned. He could have stole the glory, but he didn't. He actually shunned self and gave the glory to God. That's scene number two. Scene number three is where the dream is explained and interpreted. This is really lengthy. So divided into two particular sections, verse 31. He said, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. 
This image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and this appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king's its interpretation. Verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to yours, verse 39, shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze shall rule after all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all things. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one and mar- another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as the iron is not mixed with clay. In the days of those, the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by the human hand, and that it broke in pieces of iron, the bronze, the silver, the clay, the silver, and gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. It's a long reading to explain the dream, sure, but the dream was relatively simple in nature. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt he saw a statue, not an idol, but a statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The statue was in human form. The head was a statue of pure gold, the chest, the arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, partly of iron and partly baked clay. The statue was not permanent because it was struck on the feet by a rock not cut from human hands which reduced then the whole statue like chaff that was blown away. Chaff, of course, being that light and edible portion of grain stalk which blows away when the wind becomes uh, great on a summer day. The rock that destroyed the statue grew into a huge mountain that filled the whole earth, according to the text. So really, the dream is simple. Its meaning of the dream was what really agitated the king. And perhaps to the astonishment of Nebuchadnezzar, as Daniel is standing before the king, Daniel, he's not trembling, he's confident, he's sharing with the king the things that he's learned from the wisdom of God that's been given to him 
And, and Nebuchadnezzar really almost amazed the accuracy of every detail of Daniel's description. I mean, I like to imagine and see the scene unfold and Nebuchadnezzar like on the edge of his seat waiting for the next words that Daniel's about to describe to him because Daniel's so accurate in everything that's happening within the king's dream. The king is just waiting on the edge of his seat, waiting for the next words to be said. So he has the king's full attention. And he has all this explained to the king in verse 37. He now begins to give him the interpretation and the meaning. And we can spend an hour explaining all the details and specifics of the dream. Volumes of commentaries expand upon multiple pages of everything pertaining to the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel has explained. The dream itself is even a great study because there's great details and significance and prophetic vision that comes from this dream. But for the sake of time, let's just briefly recap. The structure itself is like four particular parts, if you will. Yeah, there's a fifth. We'll get to it in a moment. But first you have the head, the pure gold. You have the chest and the arms of silver. The belly and the thighs of bronze. And you have the legs, the iron, the feet, the toes of iron and baked clay. But then you also have that little fifth component, if you will, the rock. Not cut out by human hands. That is it. Perhaps you've seen pictures of it before in your Bible or in a study. But we ask ourselves, well, what does all this mean? We'll go back to, it again, the head of gold, according to the text, is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom himself is Babylon. Yet recognize how it does not last. The chest and the arms of silver that leads to the Persians and to the Medes. It's inferior to Babylon, but they actually still can overcome Babylon and do so in 539 BC. Then you got the thighs and the belly, which is really the the Greeks, is, the, is Alexander the Great of Greece, who actually then conquered the Medo Persian Empire in 330 BC. Then you have the legs of iron and Roman Empire, and it is powerful initially as they conquered Greece, but as the feet and the toes are a mixture of iron and clay, it weakens and becomes a divided kingdom. Many states at this particular point, the Roman Empire was just not destined to last. And say then the iron and clay just simply don't mix. But the iron and clay mixture foreshadows political divisions and vulnerable territories and racial tensions that develop. The mighty Roman Empire will lack unity as it's plagued by civil wars, social unrest, and moral relativism. All that leads to disintegration of the kingdom. But then you have the rock, the stone. It becomes a mountain, the eternal kingdom of God, eliminating all those temporal, imperfect kingdoms of men. Notice through the text, the emphasis is on the divine initiative in establishing the kingdom. It is a rock, not cut out by human hands. Something of divine nature, only by God. Whereas the God of heaven establishes this rule, unlike any of the kingdoms the world has ever experienced. Have you ever noticed how kingdoms are kind of built upon the train wreck before it? And you see that within this particular dream of how Babylon collapsed to the Middle Persians and it collapsed into Greece and then Greece collapsed to Roman Empire. 
they're all built upon the one previous to it, like upon some train wreck that couldn't last. I mean, it's like, in my mind, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it, it, it's like it, Talladega. And, and they're having this massive wreck at Talladega, and all these cars are just in, within this wreck, and they take all the wreckage and try to take all the wreckage to one more great car. But it's still just a piece of junk that can barely run. You're taking all these wrecked NASCAR cars, and you're taking all the parts of them trying to make one perfect car. Now, that may work if you remember the $6 million man. He took all the pieces back and made a $6 million man. Better, stronger, right? Who remembers a $6 million man? He was better than before. All the young people look at me thinking, what on earth are you talking about? There's a guy worth $6 million besides LeBron James? I mean, who is he? He was Colonel Steve Austin. Google it. But more, it's not like Steve Austin. I mean, if you're trying to take a wreckage in an, in, an empire and try to make something different from it and, and reshape it, it's almost like Humpty Dumpty. I mean, it's like putting all the pieces back together again, but it just continues to not work. The point is this. If it's made by man, it will fail. But the rock, it was not built by human hands. Is the one that will be everlasting. Not one of the four world empires could endure forever. Each one turning collapse to its successor. But God of heaven sets up the kingdom that will never, the text says and emphasizes, will never be destroyed. The kingdom of God, of course, is, is described as becomes a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Ronald Wallace has said it well. He says, four outstanding and different empires will run their course before the kingdom of God finally enters the world with new dynamic power as the deciding factor in history. Quite simply, that's the interpretation of the dream. The dream revealed in very simplistic matters that Daniel's God as the power behind all earthly kingdoms. Daniel's God, our God, is the power behind all earthly kingdoms. And God is still the same power behind all earthly kingdoms. It's still God. God is the power behind every kingdom, and he will establish his reign forever. It will never be destroyed. It will last. It's the only one that will last. That is what Nebuchadnezzar receives in the dream. Daniel explains it to him. And as Daniel explains it to him, taking no credit, there is something that happens in the fourth and final scene. Let's go to it. It's the king's reaction. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you have made known to me and been available to reveal the mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and great many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their new Babylonian names, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. 
Nebuchadnezzar has received the answer he longed for. Remember, if no one could interpret the dream and tell him the meaning of it, he was going to slay all these men. So he longed for it. It troubled him. But now it's been conveyed. And as we've been conveyed, you see the very first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does as Daniel explains the dream? I mean, he falls at the feet of Daniel, thinking, he falls at the feet of Daniel? What's that about? And that seems really odd. But scholars think it was a way then of honoring the God that Daniel represents. It even gave credit ultimately to God. Notice in verse 48, in keeping the promise of verse 6 that was mentioned earlier last week, the king lavished many gifts and royal honors upon Daniel. Daniel's friends were also elevated to positions of high influence in other territories. But Daniel remained at the royal court with the king. We get the promotion then of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which goes in chapter 3 for next week. But having dissected all the dream, 49 verses, taking two different weeks to do it, we asked him, what does all that mean then? How can we boil it down in quite simple terms? And the key to the entire chapter is verse 44. Look at it one more time. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be what? Never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and the kingdom of God will stand forever. God's kingdom will never, never be destroyed. Now, as we live our lives, it's natural time to be upset by wars and rumors of wars and threats and all these kind of things. I mean, you see what's happening still with the Ukraine and Russia things going on. We hear about all these nuclear missiles at times being built or being tried to be built by North Korea. There's this unrest in our relations right now with China. All these different things sometimes confuse us, and, and, and we think, well, is God truly in control? But God still is in control, and he's always in control. God, not world leaders, although they think they are, especially politicians you may know, think they are in control and have the power. But only God truly determines the outcome of history. According to the text of Daniel, we see only God truly determines the outcome of history. It goes back to the theme we had last week. We'll find throughout the book of Daniel. The theme again is this. That God is in control. God is all-knowing and he rules over all nations and rulers. But God will deliver the faithful who follow him like it is with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of the new Babylonian names. And he will deliver us just the same as long as we stay faithful and loyal and committed to him. He will deliver us. His kingdom will last and stand forever. Father.